My name is Adrian Muir-Smith. And for over 15 years, I was a criminal defence lawyer and represented thousands of individuals, many having committed the ultimate crime, murder. I gained a rare insight into the criminal mind and still was often horrified witnessing the cruelty of men. However, the nature of these more recent crimes pale in comparison to the dark deeds occurring over the centuries in Scotland's capital city. Edinburgh is truly one of the greatest cities in the world, and whilst its castles, streets and characters may seem familiar to you, there is a darker side to its history that until now has been hidden from view. I have uncovered the murky past of Edinburgh's Royal Mile, and the stories I will share with you in this series of podcasts are no ordinary crimes, murders by lords and kings, the riotous Edinburgh mob, murders by so-called resurrectionists and men so dangerous they were transported to our furthest penal colonies. For the first time I will reveal Edinburgh's criminal past and its blood which stains the very cobbles under our feet. These are gruesome tales motivated by ambition, greed and betrayal. All of this cruel violence played out in one of the world's greatest thoroughfares, the Royal Mile of Murder. On the 14th of April, 1736, Andrew Wilson was hanged in the grass market, only a minute's walk from the Royal Mile. Thousands, standing in a haunting silence, witnessed the execution, the spell only broken as a hangman attempted to cut down Wilson's body from the noose. A riot suddenly breaks out. Stones and rocks are thrown by a furious mob. The hangman and members of the city guard are wounded. Warnings are given, but ignored. A bloodbath ensues as shots are fired into the crowd. Six are killed instantly, and many others seriously wounded. Captain Porteous and 15 of his men are arrested and held in prison until a thorough investigation is carried out. The Lord Advocate takes a surprising decision to prosecute only one man, Captain Porteous. The leading advocates of the time fight the case, one side pressing for a conviction, the other for acquittal. Independent observers describe the evidence as conflicting and confusing, but nonetheless, the 15 members of the jury must decide upon the guilt or innocence of Captain Borges. On the afternoon of the 20th of July, 1736, the jury enter the courtroom and the foreman delivers a verdict. The jury find it proven that Captain John Porteous and his guard were attacked and beaten by several stones of a considerable bigness, thrown amongst them by the multitude, whereby several of the soldiers were bruised and wounded. The jury find it proven that Captain John Porteous fired a gun amongst the people assembled at the place of execution, and also that he gave orders to the soldiers under his command to fire, and upon his and their so firing, the persons mentioned in the indictment were killed or wounded. 
as Sir Walter Scott, the famous historical novelist, poet, playwright and historian observed, a jury of incensed citizens took the worst view of the case. In their view, Captain Porteous was clearly guilty. The London magazine for that month reported that eight of the jury members were for a guilty verdict and seven were against it. If this is correct, Captain Porteous's fate was decided by a majority of one. The judges announced the sentence. The Lord Justice Clerk and the Lord Commissioners of Justice, having considered the verdict of the jury, returned against John Porteous, discern and adjudge that between 2 and 4pm on Wednesday the 8th of September 1736, John Porteous is to be taken from the Tollbooth to the Grass Market, which is the common place of execution, and there, by the hands of the executioner, he is to be hanged by the neck, upon a gibbet, until dead. In the 18th century, judges were not required to take into account the reaction of family members or the general public. However, they would have been well aware of the hostility towards Captain Porteous. Captain Porteous had been convicted of extremely serious charges and in all the circumstances, the sentence of death by hanging was inevitable. The jury had reached its verdict and the judges imposed the severest sentence possible. And just like the smugglers, Hall, Robertson and Wilson, Captain Porteous was a prisoner in the toll booth, waiting for his day of execution. But what about the other guardsmen who had fired shots into the crowd? It seems that once Captain Porteous was convicted, the public and the prosecutors had no interest in bringing the soldiers to trial. As one chronicler commented, the soldiers were blameless in the eyes of the rabble as soon as their scapegoat's fate was sealed. It seems that the execution of Captain Porteous would be enough to satisfy the public's appetite for vengeance. Although the other guardsmen were kept in custody for many weeks, they either escaped or were eventually released and would never be served with an indictment. There appears to have been no appetite for another show trial. The city lawyers, a Mr Haldane, Sir James Elphinston, Mr Hugh Murray and Mr Hugh Forbes took the view that as Captain Porteous was proven to have given orders to fire, his men could not be prosecuted for obeying them. Captain Porteous will face the hangman alone. However, his fate is not completely sealed as not everyone wants to see him hang. When he was not on duty, he was a talented golfer and played with influential friends, and they saw the evidence against him as doubtful and inconclusive. They argued that, after all, he had a very difficult job to do, keeping the unruly Edinburgh mob in line, and although he may have been overzealous on the day, he was acting in the course of his duty, and surely deserved clemency. His friends argued that the behaviour of the crowd at the execution was an attempt to substitute the rule of law with the rule of the mob. This was an attack on civility and democracy. 
Although Captain Porteous had often attended other executions in his official capacity, his behaviour on such occasions had never been questioned. Indeed, the Lord Advocate stated, I have never heard, so far as I know, did ever any man before this time complain of the wickedness or inhumanity of Captain Porteous, and I have received no information by which I can be induced to think that for any considerable time before the incident in question had Captain Porteous premeditated the destructive action of which he was accused. One of the petitions for clemency was signed by the most powerful and influential men of the day, including the Duke of Buccleuch, the Earls of Moray and Morton, Viscount Primrose and others, all put their name to a plea for clemency. A petition is sent to Queen Caroline of Ansbach, the wife and consort of King George II, pleading with her to exercise her royal prerogative for mercy. They claim that Captain Porteous's execution will only encourage the public to disregard the laws of the land. The city guard were under attack at the time of the hanging, and so their reaction was understandable. They were clearly provoked, and at the very least the sentence should be commuted. Whilst the government regarded Captain Porteous's actions as merely an excess of zeal in the performance of his duty, they were weak and lacked real power and authority in Scotland. As a result, they were cautious and slow to support the petition. The pressure was relentless, and eventually, a few days before Captain Porteous's due date of execution, a letter issued by Queen Caroline arrives in Edinburgh. It reads as follows. An application having been made to Her Majesty on the behalf of John Porteous, late Captain Lieutenant of the City Guard of Edinburgh, and a prisoner under sentence of death in the jail of that city. I am commanded to signify to your lordships Her Majesty's pleasure that the execution of the sentence pronounced against the said John Porteous be respited for six weeks from the time appointed for his execution. The order was pronounced the following day. The Right Honourable the Lord Justice Clerk and the Lords Commissioners of the Judiciary, in obedience to Her Majesty's commands, discharge and prohibit the magistrates of Edinburgh and all other officers of the law from putting the forced sentence of death in execution upon the said John Porteous till the 20th of October next to come. Captain Porteous will not face a hangman on the 8th of September. Sir Walter Scott knew that the mob would not be happy with this reprieve and compared the reaction to the feelings of a tiger deprived of a meal he was about to devour. The feelings of the mob were misread by Lord Justice Clark Andrew Fletcher, who wrote to the Duke of Newcastle to acknowledge the royal mercy and stated that it has been met with the approbation of those among the higher rank and the greatest distinction, and the few who grumble are only of the meaner sort. Although there were no protests, it was not long before people were heard to say that Captain Porteous would be hanged the day he was sentenced to die, without any regard to Her Majesty's reprieve. Captain Lind of the City Guard said that for eight days the rumour of an intended riot was the common talk of the city. General George Wade, Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces in North Britain, said in his statement, The reports of this intended murder were so public 
that it was a topic of conversation for a week, in taverns, coffee houses, tea tables, and even at the Mercat Cross of Edinburgh. It had spread likewise to Glasgow, Stirling, Perth, and was talked of at Carlisle and at Berwick for some days before, and even in London. These rumours should have been taken seriously. Sir Walter Scott observed that, The mob of Edinburgh, when thoroughly excited, had been at all times one of the fiercest which could be found in Europe, and of late years they had risen repeatedly against the government, and sometimes not without temporary success. Captain Lind of the City Guard had received clear intelligence from a reliable informant about the intended assault upon Captain Porchers. He immediately spoke to the Lord Provost and described the rumour of an intended lynching as the talk of the town. His advice was dismissed. A few days after his initial warning, he again warned the Lord Provost that the rumours had intensified and he urged him to move Captain Porchers from the toll booth to Edinburgh Castle for his own safety. Again, his advice was completely ignored by the Lord Provost. There is more to this than meets the eye. The Lord Provost had been very concerned about the prospects of an attempt to free Wilson before he was executed. He had issued the city guard with ammunition, but then denied that he had authorised them to use it. But this is not logical. If they were not authorised to use their ammunition, why give it to them in the first place? As regards the various warnings given by Captain Lind, the Lord Provost gave a totally contradictory account of these meetings. He says he was told by Captain Lind that the rumours were only common gossip and could be disregarded, and that he had never received a recommendation to move Captain Porteous to the castle. Why such conflicting accounts? Sadly, it seems that the Lord Provost, like many people in positions of power, put his own interests first. Although he had relied on Captain Porteous and the city guard to control the behaviour of the Edinburgh mob, when it came to the crunch, he did not defend them. And even although he was a central player in this whole matter, he was never called to give evidence at the trial. According to some accounts, the Lord Provost was very aware of what might happen if he did so. It was widely reported that he had, in fact, received several letters from different hands acquainting him with the intentions of the mob, and some threatening him that if he did any act or anything that should defeat their plan to hang Porteous, he might expect to be hanged in his place. Captain Porteous was due to be executed on the 8th of September 1736. But due to the efforts of his influential friends, he had been granted a short reprieve. The rumours were commonplace. The friends and eyes of the smuggler Watson would not be denied an opportunity to watch Captain Porteous hang. The Lord Provost, for whatever reason, did not believe that the toll booth could be overcome by a rebellious mob. After all, there were many troops stationed within the city and close to its boundaries. Edinburgh was heavily fortified and could never be overrun. The Flodden Wall, over 200 years old, encircled Edinburgh and was designed to protect the city against an invasion from English forces. The wall stood 24 feet tall and access could only be gained through one of the five separate ports or gateways. On the evening of Tuesday 7th of September, all five ports were locked and guarded by a keeper 
and his subordinates known as waiters. Everyone believed the city was secure. However, an insurrection was about to take place that would soon engulf the whole of Edinburgh. Between 9 and 10 o'clock in the evening, a large group gathered at Portsborough, armed with staves and cudgels. Portsborough at this time was a suburb of Edinburgh and not part of the main city, and its nearest access point was Westport. The group were about to launch an amazingly bold attack on the city. Edinburgh is full of city guardsmen and full-time soldiers, but they do not seem to care. They will have their vengeance no matter what. They raid the house of the borough drummer and seize his drum. When asked why they wanted a drum, they explained, we are going to sacrifice Captain Porteous. They grab the borough drummer's son and tie a drum around his neck. He is forced to join the rioters and constantly beat the drum. This is a call to arms. The rioters cry out, hear all who dare to avenge innocent blood. The Porteous riots have started. Their assault begins at the West Port. They overpower the gatekeepers, grab the keys and enter the city, locking the gates behind them. They storm into Edinburgh and head to the Cowgate and Netherbow ports to secure the gates with large stones. This blocks any means of escape. The ringleaders send off their companions in different directions to secure all gates to the city. This will prevent the troops under the command of General Moyle from being able to crush their audacious plan. As they travel up the Royal Mile, through the various streets and wines, their numbers swell as they are joined by the Edinburgh mob, attracted to the beating of the drum. The rioters now control the city, and as the disturbance escalates, more and more people join their throng and are heard to shout, We're going to put Captain Porches to death. The outsiders and the Edinburgh mob make their way to their objective, the toll booth on the Royal Mile, where, despite numerous warnings, Captain Porteous is still being held. This is no simple breach of the peace or protest. This is a daring plan, executed with almost military precision. As the rioters make their way to the toll booth, the Lord Provost is enjoying his evening in a tavern in Parliament Close, in the company of officers from the HMS Dreadnought, he is blissfully unaware of the commotion on the streets outside. His dinner is interrupted when his niece sends him a message that there are a few boys beating a drum in the grass market. The Lord Provost decides not to abandon the pleasant company of his companions and sends Captain Lynn to investigate. Captain Lynn soon realises that the earlier rumours of a riot were true. This is more serious than a few boys beating a drum. There are now around four or five thousand rioters making their way to the toll booth, and Captain Lind realises this has no equal even in Edinburgh's turbulent history. This is an unprecedented public disorder on the greatest scale imaginable. Captain Lind runs back to the tavern and notifies the Lord Provost that urgent action is needed. He must protect the toll booth and Captain Porteous. The Lord Provost and the City Magistrates should realise that immediate assistance is required from General Moyle and the King's troops who are stationed close by in the Canning Gate. 
However, there is no sense of urgency, and they merely debate whether a verbal message or a written command is required to summon help. As they waste precious moments, the rioters surround the city guards' barracks, overpower the small number of guardsmen in duty, steal 90 firearms and lockerbar axes, and start handing them out through the windows of the barracks to their fellow rioters. The rioters are fully armed and ready to overwhelm the toll booth. The Lord Provost and Magistrates consider various options. Perhaps they could ring the alarm bells at St Giles Church, or maybe ask for help from Major Robertson, who commands the garrison at Edinburgh Castle. Frustrated at the ineptitude of the Lord Provost, a group of unarmed magistrates and members of the city guard decide they have to do something and make their way to the toll booth. However, they are confronted by hundreds of armed rioters and have no option but to retreat. Major Robertson, who was warned about the likelihood of a riot by a servant, had prepared a hundred men for action. Half of them are armed with hand grenades and all are standing at the lower gate of Edinburgh Castle waiting for direction from the Lord Provost. These orders are never issued. The rioters secure St Giles Church Tower, preventing Lord Provost from using the bell, and they raid the munitions store and grab all of the weapons. They are continually one step ahead of the Lord Provost. At the toll booth they spend 30 minutes trying to break down the doors with sledgehammers, but fail to gain entry. Realising the old jail will not give up its prisoner easily, they have to find other means of capturing Captain Porteous. The author, William Rockhead, describes the scene. A parcel of broom and furs and heaps of timber are placed over a barrel of pitch and massed against the door. The torches taken from the hands of the magistrates are applied to the pile and in a few seconds the sombre gateway is wrapped in a sheet of roaring fire. The strong fabric, which had so bravely withstood the blows of the sledgehammers, crumbled and cracked. As the flames did their stealthy work, and before the prison door was burnt down, several of the rioters burst through the blazing wreck. Although they can scarcely see one another for the smoke, the rioters rush up the turnpike stair to the iron room searching for Captain Porteous. They force the turnkeys to open every cell and release all of the other prisoners so they can find their prey. A report in the Caledonian Mercury stated, No less than 17 criminals escaped from the city jail on this occasion, including the dragoon who were indicted for the murder of the butcher's wife in Dunce, two New Haven men brought in from Blackness Castle for smuggling, and seven sentinels of the city guard. These seven sentinels of the city guard, who had been arrested with Captain Porteous after the execution of Wilson, were left unharmed and allowed to escape by the mob. They were not the ones being sought to exact a cruel vengeance. Captain Porteous is found at last, and when they burst into his cell shouting, Where are you, Porteous? He quietly responds, Gentlemen, I am here. But what are you to do with me? They reply, We are going to take you to the place where you shed so much innocent blood and hang you. They drag him down the stone steps onto the street, wearing only his nightgown, cap and trousers. Captain Porteous 
is now at the mercy of the mob. Please stay with me, Adrian Muir-Smith, as we continue with the story of the Porteous riots. In the next episode, you'll hear what happens to Captain Porteous about the prosecution of the leaders of the riot and how the government deal with the failure of the Lord Provost to defend Captain Porteous from the anger of the mob. This series of podcasts has been possible due to the support of so many individuals. Thanks to Arlene Anderson, Ronnie Renucci QC, Andy Houston, Jeremy Fraser, David Campbell, Colin Mackay, Colin Henderson and Russell Lockland for contributing their voices to these tales. A huge thanks to Kirsty Archer-Thompson and Steve Penman who spent many hours reviewing the scripts and providing advice and support. And of course to the young and very talented musicians Nick Launer, Neve McIlvenny, Abigail Young, Joanna Dodds and Anne McClucky. And then the special large thanks to Jack McClucky who wrote the music score and performed a violin, acoustic guitar, mandolin, banjo and vocals as well as production and editing of The Black Dinner. And finally, to Martin and Jason Rennie for their outstanding editing and production of The Coach's Riots. To all listeners, please subscribe to these podcasts and be the first to enjoy new episodes as they are published. <laughs>